you know, in church, we have sometimes a bit of our own vocabulary, right, that we kind of get used to, or maybe even sometimes there's, well, for example, for me today, there was a new word. I was looking at the bulletin, and I noticed the Asbury Ringers doing a piece called Pie Jesus, which (laughs) sounds amazing to me. Is that, is it like a new way of receiving communion or what? I don't know. I'd be up for that, but Danny told me it's actually P.A., Jesus, which means pious, so that's also a good thing, I guess. But one of our words, though, that we have this morning is a word, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it's not a word that you're just going to go over to the grocery store after church and use, most likely. Uh, It's actually a Greek word that the Greek word is literally just uh, the combination of two Hebrew words. And basically, as Linda said, it means, Lord, save us. In fact, there's even some urgency to it. Lord, save us now. But not in a demanding way, in a a worshipful way is kind of the original language, what it would bring out there. That it's this belief that we need Jesus to save us. That, that we trust that he can and he will save us. So on this Palm Sunday, we join the church globally saying, Lord, save us. Save us now, in fact. Palm Sunday is a special day. In fact, I've asked our kids uh, to share with us a little bit about what it means, and we've got a video of them doing just that. Let's check it out. Because celebrating is fun. Because it's Easter. That's when Jesus came into Nazareth. To celebrate the arrival of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. As he was coming over for the Passover meal. When Jesus was sitting on his donkey. We wear bones because Jesus is coming. Because Jesus is our king and that's how we treat him. When Jesus rode in on a donkey, people started like peeling pine leaves off of trees and waving them because Jesus was like in their city. Because they thought he was the king. They thought that he was the Messiah. Pretty adorable, aren't they? Might have to fact check a couple of them, but that's okay. It's a special day. It's a sacred day. As Linda had said earlier, this amazing dichotomy exists between Jesus coming in 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 humility for what we know he was going to do and the power on the other side of town. It's it's an interesting thing how the day happened because Jesus comes into the crowd, into the Jerusalem, and everyone is so excited. I mean, after all, he had just raised a dead guy, right? Lazarus, like, and so word is getting around about this, and people are so excited, yelling, Hosanna, Lord, save us, because they had this occupying force, the Roman army who was there, and none of the Jews wanted them there. And now in Jesus, they see this hope that here's somebody who could throw off these Roman occupiers. I mean, if he can raise the dead, what can't he do, right? He's, he's so powerful, and so they're excited about this, and they yell, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And five days later, the same crowd will yell, crucify him, crucify him. What happened? What went so wrong? Well, 
Things changed quickly because a couple reasons. First, the Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus' popularity and influence within the crowd. John 12, 17, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. This was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Everyone has gone after him. How do we stop him, right? He's got the whole crowd after him, which, which explains why when they would arrest Jesus and try him, they would do so at night, which was actually illegal in Jewish law to have a trial at night. He would be quickly hurried off to Pontius Pilate, who didn't even want to condemn him, but did so out of fear of an uprising among the Jewish people. He would be condemned and crucified completely unjustly. His crime? (laughs) That he is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Son of God. You know, the whole story is Jesus coming into the city is a bit of a foreshadowing of what would happen after Jesus would ascend into heaven, that while Jesus would depart from earth, it wasn't that God was leaving the earth. No, Jesus had a promise that he made that he was going to send the Holy Spirit in power. Now, it's interesting because it's not as if the Holy Spirit hadn't been there all along right? We see the presence of the Spirit from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 at creation, the Spirit is hovering over the surface of the water. The Spirit was the one who had spoke through the prophets. The Spirit had, was active in so many ways throughout the Old Testament, but there was going to be something different. That presence of the Holy Spirit was going to be different after Jesus ascended and when he sent the Holy Spirit in power. Here at Anderson Hills, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit very strongly. We believe in the triune God, and we believe that the Holy Spirit, that when we give our lives to Jesus, that God fills us right then with the Holy Spirit, and that we throughout our lives can experience subsequent experiences of the Holy Spirit's power. And that the Holy Spirit is with us day in and day out. It empowers us to follow Jesus. It empowers us to serve God. It leads us. It guides us. It convicts us of sin. It works in powerful ways in our lives. Sometimes we see it in in big and incredible ways. Like just a few weeks ago, we had a Holy Spirit conference, and we saw people being physically healed, like 50 people being healed of physical ailments. It was incredible to see. Other times, it's a lot more subtle and simple. Uh, It's that nudge that you feel when you feel guided by God to do something, and you don't necessarily even know why. I snuck in late to the 930 service this morning and was looking for a place to sit, and I just can't really explain it. I just sensed that I needed to sit in this certain spot, and I sat down there. Afterwards, there was a person behind me who was sobbing, who had gone through a great tragic loss in their family, so we prayed together. And as soon as I said amen, she said, God told you to sit here so you could pray for me. I hadn't even put, done, I hadn't even done the math. (laughs) I just kind of honestly I'd forgotten about it. I just sat down. Yet God was at work. 
Not because I did anything incredible, but because God just knew. The Holy Spirit works in so many different ways. In our passage today, the whole, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the advocate. John is the only biblical author who describes Jesus, or sorry, describes the Holy Spirit using this term. And in these verses, it sounds almost like a, a lawyer of sorts. You're welcome, lawyers. I just compared you to God. I know, it doesn't get happened a lot. He says this, verse, John 15, 26, but I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify about me. But in fact, it is best for you, verse 7, that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Jesus is just hours away, maybe even less than that, from his own trial. And Jesus will stand there before the Jewish leaders and before Pilate with no advocate, no lawyer, being unjustly tried and condemned. False witnesses will testify against him. And at the end of the day, the Jews will con- condemn him for being who he says he is, the Son of God. Jesus is asserting through this that basically that the real trial will come, <laughs> and it won't be a trial of Jesus. It would be a trial of the world. His lawyer will come later, if you will. The Holy Spirit will do just a few things. First, it'll convict the world of, re- of rejecting Jesus and failing to believe in him. And we experience that in our own life. When we're, if we're living apart from Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And it's not for the purpose of shaming us or embarrassing us. No, it's the pur- for the purposes of drawing us to, to him. Because, you know, without the Holy Spirit's conviction, you probably knew you were a sinner. I mean, I'm doubting anybody came in here and be like, nope, I'm good, I'm fine, nothing wrong with me. If so, just talk to your family members, they'll help enlighten you, don't worry. We all know we're sinners. The Holy Spirit doesn't convict us for the purpose of condemnation, the Holy Spirit convicts us for, convicts us for the purpose of salvation that we can receive the free gift of Jesus Christ because now I realize that I can't fix this sin problem. I need the sacrifice of Jesus to do it. And so I'm going to trust in him that I can be saved, which leads us to the second thing. It shows the world that God is righteous. That means he does no wrong. The world was wrong to condemn Jesus And ironically, Jesus was condemned to death by the world when in reality, he was giving his life for the world, for me, for you. That is the free gift of God. And finally, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us here, it shows the world that God's judgment will come for those who follow Satan's ways. The Bible tells us that it's appointed to people once to die and then the judgment. When you die, 
you're not going to stand before a mirror someday and self-evaluate, okay? It's not a matter of like, I think I did pretty good, you know? I mean, when you look at me compared to like my neighbors, I'm pretty outstanding, actually. I could have done a whole lot of things worse. No, that's not it. The standard is not standards that I would set. The standard is God's righteousness, God's holiness, and I fall short. If, and maybe the Spirit is convicting you today, convicting you of, of sin or calling you perhaps to himself. And, and we get filled with the Holy Spirit when we give our lives to Jesus. Now, does that mean that life will always be easy? No, not at all. If you read the Bible, you read about the people in the New Testament here who were filled with the Holy Spirit. God used them to build the church, and their lives were anything but easy. In fact, many of them suffered greatly for this. It's, the, Jesus does not promise that life will be easy. No, he promises that he will be present through the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, why is, why, why is life worth living if you're a follower of Jesus? It's the presence of God, not the absence of trouble, that makes life worth living. Knowing that God is present with me, because here's the facts, you're going to have trouble whether God is with you or not. You're going to have hurt, you're going to have pain, you're going to have loss. The question is, are you going to do it on your own? Or are you going to do it with the presence of God in your life to lead and guide, to comfort, and to give us a hope that is beyond this world? That's what God offers us. But that's not all. The advocate also will be empowering the believers as they minister to the world around them. Verse 13 says it this way, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory, Jesus says, by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. The Spirit communicates to us, gives us these nudges from Jesus. That, that we, thus, we have his presence with us throughout all of our lives. And that's why Jesus is saying, it's actually better if I leave, because now I'm right inside of you. I'm always with you. I am always speaking to you, always guiding you. So it's even better. The Holy Spirit's power isn't something that's going to be separate from the believers. He's going to work through the believers. Isn't that amazing? That God, all-powerful God, chooses to use you and me as some of his primary instruments of power, of love, of grace here in this world. God could choose anything, and he chooses to use us. That can be a scary thought, I know. I remember when I was in college, it was the spring of 1999, and I was in intro to preaching class, which quite frankly, I wasn't terribly interested in taking. I didn't think I was going to preach. I saw myself as a behind-the-scenes kind of person, and that's kind of where I wanted to stay. The idea of talking in front of people sounded terrible to me, in fact. I heard something in that class, though, that the Holy Spirit used to change my life and shape my calling. 
Dr. Dave Bieberstein was our professor, and he said this. He said, you students, you're going to go out from this place, and you have no right to stand in a pulpit and give your opinions or insights on the world. You're not special, and you don't have any more right than anybody else sitting in your congregation. You don't have any more right to stand up there than, than the lawyer or the garbage man or the electrician or the stay-at-home mom or whoever it is. You don't have that. So there's only one reason that you should ever step into that pulpit, and that is if you're going to bring the Word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God used that to reshape my understanding of all this, not just preaching, that's just one example, but all ministry is God's power working through us. So when we say something like, oh, God couldn't use me, or God wouldn't do that, or this or that through me, well, (laughs) it's God's power, not yours. It's God using you. If God calls you, he's going to equip you, I promise. He's not going to leave you hanging because the Holy Spirit is always with you. The question is, what do we do when we hear those nudges from God, when we sense God speaking to us, shaping us, talking to us, telling us to do something, whether it's bigger or smaller, how are we going to respond? Because our response is what makes all the difference. You can, you can hear things, but if you don't respond, it doesn't change you. I'll give you a simple illustration. I've got this little tennis ball here, and I want to use the, the dropping of this ball to represent God speaking to you, like the voice of God coming into your life. And the catching of the ball would represent our response in obedience, right? It's like in our life that God speaks, we obey. God speaks, we obey. And it works if we continue to do so, that I hear the voice of God, whether maybe it's something big, I obey, or maybe it's something little, like sit in that seat. Maybe it's say a kind word, so I say a kind word. Maybe it's give somebody a gift. Maybe it's, I don't know, whatever God's calling you to do. When we do that, we're in this relationship, this communion with God, where it it continues and continues. The problem comes when God speaks, and oh, man, I kind of lose it because I don't respond by catching it. I let it drop. Is it that God gave up on me? No. Is it that God stopped speaking? No. It's that voice gets quieter and quieter. Why? (laughs) I get better at putting my fingers in my ears. God hasn't stopped speaking to you. Maybe we've just gotten our ears clogged a little bit. So I ask you today, are you open to the voice of God in your life? That were God to speak to you, would you be willing to say yes? And I want to challenge you with something pretty straightforward, simple to explain, difficult to do. Call it the 10-second challenge. What if you were to hear God's voice in your life and you said, I'm going to obey in like 10 seconds or less? Like I, if I hear God telling me to do something kind for somebody, I'll do it. If I hear God telling me to sit somewhere, I'll sit there. If I hear God telling me to say something, I I will do it. Now, let me give a disclaimer. There are things 
that need more prayerful discernment than that, okay? God may lead and guide you to do bigger things. Uh, you need to give it more than 10 seconds, right? Like, when I first sensed God guiding me to marry Jennifer, I didn't just get down on one knee right then, right? No, <laughs> you need some discernment around that. Or if you sense God calling you to give away your kid's college fund, take some time with that one, okay? <laughs> For the sake of your kid, take some time with that one. But when God gives you something, would you either act on it right then if possible, or if it needs discernment, would you commit right then to that process of discernment? Because friends, God wants to speak to you. The Bible tells us we've got the advocate with us. He's within us. Jesus has sent him. He gives us power. He gives us the presence of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got it. Yes, you. It's not just for pastors, not just for church staff or choirs or whatnot. It's for all believers. So I invite you to start every day by asking God, God, would you speak to me? Would you guide me? In fact, let's do it right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Won't you speak to us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Maybe some of us are getting some words of clarity. Help us to act on those. Maybe for others, we're not getting anything at this moment, but we just ask God that you would help us to just have a posture of openness to your voice, to your word, to your calling in our lives. Speak. Your servants are listening. God, we love you, and we praise you that you do speak to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.